You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Jacqueline Bullock. I am the Director of Education and Visitor Services at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum. Uh, thank you so much for taking your time this evening to join us for this incredible conversation about the amazing life and legacy of Elijah Cummings. Um, this is a partnership between the Lewis Museum and the Enoch Pratt Free Library System, and we are so happy to be partnering um, on this event this evening. And I'd like to introduce Heidi Daniels, Thank you, Jacqueline. I want to thank the Reginald F. Lewis Museum so much for their partnership for tonight's event. Tonight's Brown Lecture Series is a really special event for us here at the Pratt. Congressman Elijah Cummings was a lifelong supporter of our library system. He championed the Pratt Library as a legislator, and the congressman often told the story of how Pratt librarians went above and beyond to help him as a child when he was struggling in school. In an interview with 60 Minutes, he emotionally said of those librarians, there are a lot of good people who really care. And he always cared about the Pratt, a place he called a beacon of light and hope. Tonight, we are honored to remember the life and legacy of the late Congressman and all of his work for the city of Baltimore and our entire country. Tonight, we are joined by his wife, Dr. Maya Rocky Moore Cummings, a social entrepreneur, speaker, writer, and strategist who is on a mission to drive society towards inclusion. She is joined by writer and collaborator, James Dale, who collaborated with Congressman Cummings to write his memoir, we're better than this, the fight for the future of our democracy. The book was recently nominated for two NAACP Image Awards, Outstanding Literary Work of Nonfiction and Outstanding Literary Work Debut Author. Copies of the book are available at our partner, the Ivy Bookshop, and of course, through the Pratt Library via sidewalk service. If you have any questions, we will be monitoring the Zoom chat and Facebook comments. We'll try to get to as many as possible. Tonight's conversation will be moderated by civil right advocate and another champion of the Pratt Library, UMBC President, Dr. Freeman Harbowski. It is my honor to now turn this conversation over to Dr. Harbowski. Thank you. Very good. Thank you, Heidi, very much. Delighted to be here. And I want to welcome all of you. I, I, we were going to begin by having Dr. Cummings, and I'm going to call him Maya, though Elijah liked her being called Dr. Cummings, and Jim Dale. To both of whom will be reading from different perspectives. Uh, and I think it's important to do that as we set the context and we give people a sense of the book and the people who were closest to him in the writing of this book. And then we'll come back and we'll start with the questions. But so we let, let's start with Maya, if you would begin with your reading, please. Actually, Jim usually takes it first. Oh, okay. Um, you wanna go ahead? Well, sure. Uh, um... Um, often Maya and I will start these conversations by recounting the very beginnings of the book. That is how it came about when there was no book. And um, she tells a story, I'll tell it for her, of, of, of her <clears throat> being in search of a co-author or a collaborator or a helper or somebody to, to pull this out and put it on paper. And that she happened to um, have lunch with a person who's a mutual friend and, and fortuitously 
that it came up in conversation and our, our, our mutual friend said, I know somebody who helped, who does this kind of thing, writing these books. She connected me with Maya, Maya and I talked and Maya put me in front of Elijah Cummings and to see if, uh, if we had the right chemistry to make it happen. And we had a couple of meetings like that and it became apparent that he was ready to go to say the least. And he wanted to do that story and he felt comfortable and Maya felt comfortable and I, and we were just all sort of, uh, you know, felt like this was right. And we got going uh, almost immediately. I like to tell the story that he, I knew he was ready to do this because he booked me for about a half hour on his schedule in his office. And um, I didn't know it at the time, it was about a half hour. And, and we talked and talked and talked and talked and he kept telling me stories and I was recording and writing as fast as I could. And about three hours later, he, yeah, I said, you know, uh, do you need to do some more work? And he said, well, well, I can keep going, but I think that's enough for today. I mean, three hours was, uh, was unbelievable. <clears throat> and we, but that was not uncommon. So, um, as I said earlier, um, I have, and as, as a, uh, Dr. Hebrowski said, I've been writing books like this, that is to say, as a collaborator, as a co-author, for quite some time. Um, and I always have been fortunate enough to find great partners, interesting people to work with. And I've had very good experiences and I've learned a lot. But I have to say that without question, uh, in co-authoring books through almost 25 years, that this book had more personal impact, this project was more meaningful and more indelible as an experience than anything I've ever written in my entire writing life. And I, I want to keep writing books. I don't expect anything to measure up to this. Um, we had this session after session where he would tell me these stories. I would just be sort of blown away and be anxious to write them, anxious to get them down on paper to figure out where they might fit in the book. And we began to formulate a structure very early on that was this quilted interweaving of his formative stories of youth with the stories of real time that were going on at the most critical period in the uh, history of the country. And that somehow the daily interactions and the daily challenges he was facing were so often informed by or, or fueled by values and ideas and stories that came out of his past it became apparent that that was the, that was the structure and fabric of the book. And <clears throat> so I was always digging for an old story with a new story. And very early in our writing session, I asked Elijah, I said, is there one story that maybe rises above the rest? And that as a, as a um, author or a co-author or a collaborator, that's a very unfair question to have someone say to you in your whole life, what's the most important thing? But, and I thought, well, maybe he'd say, well, there are three or four or five and he, and, and there were 30, 40, but he stopped and he said, without any hesitation, yes, there is one story that rises above all the rest. And then he recounted this experience and I'm going to read an excerpt from that story. When I was no more than 11 years old, my life was forever altered. I certainly didn't realize it at the time. I knew something important was happening, but it took a long while before the impact really hit me. We had a neighborhood 
community playground center where the kids would gather in the summer with a small waiting pool and some recreation counselors to watch over us. Our little waiting pool was no more than a few feet across and a few and very shallow, maybe up to your knees, filled with kids side by side. You had to take turns a half hour at a time. And after the third group, the water was pretty dirty. But that was the only way we had to get cool on a hot day. One day in late August, a lady came and asked us, how would you like to go to a real swimming pool? One with a diving board, an Olympic-sized pool. Well, we all thought that'd be great, but how is that going to happen? Well, she said there was a pool just like that, only a few blocks away from where we were in Riverside Park, and that we deserved to go there, and she was going to take us. She said, quote, you can swim to your heart's delight. Those were her words almost 50 years ago, to your heart's delight. Her name was Juanita Jackson Mitchell. And to us, she was just this nice lady who was going to take us to a real swimming pool. We didn't realize until later that she was a civil rights pioneer from a family of civil rights pioneers, the very first African-American woman to practice law in Maryland. Juanita Jackson Mitchell's mother was the inspirational Dr. Lily Jackson, who descended from a signer of the Declaration of Independence, but still had to attend the segregated colored high school. She rose to president of the Baltimore branch of the NAACP, became an early leader in nonviolent protest, was known as the mother of freedom. Her daughter, Juanita, was married to Clarence Mitchell Jr., a national leader in civil rights and lobbyist for the NAACP, and they were the parents of two state senators, Michael and Clarence III. Civil rights was practically the family business. What Mrs. Mitchell did not tell us that day about the nice pool she was taking us to was that it was totally segregated, no blacks allowed. She and her colleagues at the rec center, Jim Smith and Walter Black, were leading us on an integration march. There we were, a band of little kids walking down the streets of Baltimore from a black neighborhood to a white neighborhood, only a few blocks from each other, but worlds apart. Day after day, Juanita and Jim and Walter led about 30 of us walking 10 or 15 blocks while an angry mob, not of other kids, but of grown white adults, yelled names at us, told us to go home and threw rocks and bricks at little kids. One of those rocks struck me in the forehead and caused a scar that I carry to this day. The police watched and the newspapers took pictures and ran stories, but nobody stopped the angry residents and nobody stopped us. We kids would swim in the Riverside Park pool each day and then leave with quote unquote neighbors yelling racial epithets and throwing debris and bottles and white kids pushing black kids in the pool. I call them neighbors ironically. Yes, we all lived within a few blocks of each other, but they were hardly neighborly. They were the opposite people trying to keep us out of their neighborhood. Tensions were high. After taking Sunday off, they let us back again on Monday, Labor Day, September 3rd. That day, someone called Walter's associate, Lyle Roberts, a nigger, the hostility escalating. But about that time, the Riverside Park citizens clinging to their white segregated enclave must have realized that we were all gonna just keep coming back because they stopped coming to their doorways and out into the streets shouting and throwing rocks. Just as Juanita Mitchell promised, we all got to go to a real pool. And as she said, we swam to our heart's delight. Even as little children, we had a sense of victory, victory and fear, 
We'd gone off to play every day, but we ended up making history. That was in the early 1960s and old rules and practices and even prejudices began slowly but steadily to change. Baltimore stayed largely segregated for the next 10 years, but it was the beginning, the root of what would evolve into a massive upheaval in social norms, change. For me, that was the beginning of wanting to become somebody who could make things change. I saw that Mitchell and the other people who made integration happen were lawyers. So I wanted to be a lawyer. These lawyers were young men and women who had the courage to walk up the streets and have people yell at them and be unafraid, to have little kids follow them, trusting and believing in them, to make change happen. I wasn't sure what a lawyer was, what the job was, but I saw what they could accomplish. Oh my God, what a powerful force that could be. Change. Little black children getting what only white children had because we were, after all, just kids no matter what color, who wanted the same chances in life, the chance to swim in a pool, the chance to go to a good school or live in a nice neighborhood or see a better world. I wanted to be part of that change. And I've endeavored to do so ever since. And I've pursued it ever since. As for progress and achieving change, well, here is a fitting postscript. 30 years later, a man came up and identified himself as one of those in the angry mob and told me he was sorry. What's the right response to justice acknowledged, but so long delayed? I did not applaud his admission, nor did I spurn it. I said, apology accepted. Elijah said he never forgot the swimming pool incident. It was formative in everything he did. He, re he recalled it and it fueled his actions when he conducted hearings on the Trump immigration policies, separating mothers and children, putting them in cages, when Trump launched his Twitter attack on Cummings and beloved hometown as dis a disgusting rat infested, rat and rodent infested mess, when Elijah answered George Stephanopoulos's question, yes, Trump is a racist, no doubt about it. When Elijah walked the streets of Baltimore to calm his city after the senseless death of, Fred of Freddie Gray. At Freddie's funeral, when he asked, those watching and listening, did you see him? Did you really see him? You see him in the casket and you see him on the news. But when he walked to school, when he played ball and on his neighborhood team, when he sang in the choir, did you see him? Elijah Cummings decried the invisible black lives so often lost, never really seen. And it was stories like this as the fabric that interwove his life and mission. And now I'd like to turn it back over to Maya, his wife and partner, who wrote the last chapter of the book after his death, and who can also talk about what has occurred since that time. Maya? Thank you, Jim. I think that is incredibly important, and I often pose this question. How is it possible uh, that, you know, Elijah was born an African-American uh, in a society that was segregated uh, and uh, basically turned its back on people like him? Uh, how did he become, you know, one of the biggest defenders of our democracy? And it was that experience that transformed him, that showed him that through the power uh, that he and the other children and the people from the NAACP and Juanita Jackson Mitchell had, that they could lean on the system and change it for the better. They could literally uh, make this country a better place and transform lives. 
Uh, and so, you know, when you get that power and that taste at a young age, at, a, at the age of 11 in Elijah's case, uh, you know, for him, you know, it convinced him that this form of government that we have is special, that the power is in the people. Uh, and so with that, I'm going to um, read from uh, a segment on the last chapter of the book uh, and then bring it up to current times. After the Democrats regained the majority in the midterms, Elijah was the chairman of the Committee on Oversight and Reform. He was finally in a position to lead investigations and to set the agenda for hearings. But he was sober about the realities of the threats he and his committee would face from the Trump administration and congressional Republicans. Despite his pain, he threw himself into his work. Then in late summer, just before his speech at the National Press Club, he took yet another bad turn and was readmitted to Johns Hopkins. The underlying suspicion was that the cancer had come back. Elijah was weaker than I'd seen him in years. A day before he was to give the speech, I asked if he still intended to do it. And he said, Maya, I'll be there if I have to crawl. Elijah was so drained that when his aides maneuvered him to the podium, pale and unsteady, I thought he might drop. Then he looked at the crowd four or five times the size of what had been expected before his investigations into the administration, before the shootings in Dayton and El Paso, and before Trump's Twitter attack on Baltimore and Elijah. He looked at that crowd and you could see him become energized. He exhorted the audience to listen and more important, to take action. He was passionate as only Elijah Cummings could be. The gathering of usually callous Washington media cheered and gave him, a, gave him a standing ovation. Exhausted and barely able to keep going, he went straight back to the hospital. During the next few weeks, he managed to continue vital work. He was on the phone with Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler and his staff. He read testimony, he reviewed the impeachment updates, he signed subpoenas. So many times I said, Elijah, that's enough for today. Okay, I'll stop soon, he'd say. Doctors at Hopkins and the NIH monitored his cancer. It was obviously recurring. The question was, could they do anything to slow it down or limit it? We did everything we could. There became, I think the best word is an inevitability to it. He knew and I suspected we were coming to the end. It was coming as if you could see it like a train approaching in the distance. When you're not sure how far it is, but you know it's steadily coming towards you. That's when he began to talk differently. He would say he was tired, no matter how much rest he got, just tired all the time. He complained of constant pain. It was clearly physical but it was also emotional and spiritual. The inner Elijah was burning out. We talked about the past, what Elijah had done, and about the future and all that remained to be done. But we did not use the word death. We just knew. As it sped by his passing, events moved even faster in the days just after Elijah's death. 
On December 18th, 2019, Speaker Nancy Pelosi banged the gavel and announced that the House of Representatives voted 230 to 197, strictly along party lines, to impeach Donald J. Trump, the third president in the history of the United States to face impeachment charges. That evening during her press conference, she spoke about Elijah. She honored him as a key force in the inquiry, calling him our North Star. And she quoted him, quote, when the history books are written about this tumultuous era, I want them to show that I was among those in the House of Representatives who stood up to lawlessness and tyranny, she added. He also said somewhat presciently, when we're dancing with the angels, the question will be, what did you do to make sure we kept our democracy intact? We did all we could, Elijah. We passed the two articles of impeachment. The president is impeached. As I often told people in the days after his death, Elijah's death wasn't just my loss. It was our loss as a nation. And we all have the responsibility to move his legacy forward. Before and because we know that with every transgression, every disregard for the Constitution, every attempt to act above the law, every denial of truth, our democracy is endangered. That's why in the months and years ahead, we must continue to hear Elijah's voice. We're better than this. We're better than this. Yes, we are. We must be. So with that, um, you know, Elijah's words, his deeds, his legacy were all prescient, you know, uh, perhaps more so than many people would have wished. Uh, you know, since his passing, we've lived through some historic moments uh, from the impeachment charges, at first impeachment charges, uh, to the partisan acquittal, to the COVID pandemic and the botched response, by the way, none of which would have surprised Elijah to the ugly presidential campaign, uh, to the merciful uh, election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, uh, to the claims of a stolen election, the big lie by Trump and his supporters and uh, even members of the US Congress, uh, you know, to the dismissal of all of the lawsuits that they filed, the frivolous lawsuits trying to claim uh, that there was fraud in the election. Uh, to even his tampering with state elections, asking Republican officials in Georgia and elsewhere uh, to actually find votes. Uh, you know, there was complicity of over 100 members of Congress to overturn the Electoral College for Biden and Harris. That is the very definition of treason. Uh, to, tr uh, to Trump, uh, to, of course, turning on his own vice president and to the president himself uh, on January 6th, inciting a mob. Uh, to go and actually interrupt the certification of a free and fair presidential election. All of this uh, was, you know, something that, uh, you know, we have had to face in the nation since Elijah, of course, passed away. So I get a lot of questions about what would he have thought? Uh, what would he have done? Uh, did his worst fears come to pass? And the fact of the matter is, is that democracy uh, did prevail, but he would have been devastated about what happened at the U.S. Congress on January 6th. You know, Elijah would have been on the floor of that house. Uh, and, you know, of course, we always talk about the members of Congress who are in danger, but there were staff who were there, uh, you know, and certainly employees of the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives and the Congress. 
And so there were a lot of people who were put in harm's way on that day. Uh, and so, you know, he would have been angry and sad. Uh, and he would have called out loud and clear for justice and accountability. So with that, you know, I think that we're at a vital and critical moment, I think, in the history of our nation. Elijah's call uh, for us to be better than this, I think, is uh, prescient now that we're actually in the second impeachment trial uh, on the Senate side. I certainly hope uh, that the senators listen uh, with open hearts and open minds. Uh, and certainly, I hope that they vote to convict. Elijah would have urged them to convict. Uh, and with that, I'll just stop there. It's great, Maya. Uh, if, if Elijah were with us now, I would have heard him doing that grunt that he would do, that mm, that he would have given. Being proud of both of you and what you've said. Let's start there. And I, I want to make this as informal as possible. And I want to think about Elijah's ability to go, as I've said before, from policy and politics to the personal to the individual, to the dying stranger in the book, to listening to listening to those young men during the Freddie Gray crisis. And, and I want, my if you could talk, and then Jim, um, about the personal. In the writing of the book, he was going through many challenges, including the pain. And whatever goes, as you think about getting ready to dance with the angels, as you think about that process of his talking and giving the stories, what do you remember that stands out as his ability to rise above it all and to tell the story and yours to work with him and Jim, you to give support. Talk a moment about the personal side of that because I think what you say about that challenging period can speak volumes about what we must do right now. So please. Am I going for it? Is it on yeah. me? Okay. So I've got to say that the last two and a half years of Elijah's life were challenging because he was in and out of the hospital. I would estimate that we, we spent more than 130 days, um, you know, in and out of the hospital during that, that period of time. But the last year was really intense uh, because, you know, Elijah had multiple investigations going. He was responsible for actually overseeing the investigations of all of the agencies of Congress and the White House. So he had a hand in everything from uh, Donald Trump's finances. He, you know, filed the original lawsuit actually uh, around that uh, to Jared and Ivanka's security clearances and their use of personal emails and servers in order to do government business. Uh, you know, to what was happening at the southern border with the children being ripped away from their parents. Uh, you know, to the, the racist census question uh, that they were trying to insert, uh, asking about citizenship. He had a broad portfolio that was absolutely mind-boggling, if you really think about it. But in addition to that, um, you know, Donald Trump basically uh, had, I think, by midsummer, had determined uh, and identified Elijah as enemy number one. And he was going to do everything that he could to undermine an attack personally uh, and of course publicly. Uh, and so what you all saw from the public angle uh, was you know, him you know, making snide remarks about Baltimore uh, and about uh, uh, Elijah. Uh, but you know, personally, there were traumatic things happening. We had a break-in in the house that I'm sitting in right now. 
never had one uh, in the history of uh, uh, my being here. And Elijah mentioned that he'd only had one in his 35 years of being here. And that was an inside job, so to speak. Uh, and so, you know, we often wondered, uh, because just a few short hours after we ran the man off, uh, you know, Donald Trump started tweeting about Elijah and how bad the crime was in Baltimore. We just thought it was too coincidental. So, you know, of course, Elijah always got death threats, but I was even getting death threats. Uh, and so, you know, there was, uh, you know, it was, we felt like we were in a war zone. Uh, and it was incredibly tense. Uh, the pressure was high. Uh, and certainly the pressure on Elijah, who was also dealing with, you know, his health challenges, uh, you know, certainly cancer uh, and certainly the, the, uh, uh, the diminishment of his uh, kidney capacity, um, you know, all of that was all happening at once. And I certainly think, and I think he believed, he said in the book that the stress from the job uh, the yeah. stress from Donald Trump, I think, helped to actually facilitate and accelerate his his passing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jim, well, I think that 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 says a, a great deal. Of, I mean, that really gives us the picture of it. Because I always imagined when I would talk with him during the day that he'd be coming home at night and talking with you and sort of unloading that that day and processing and what it must have been like. Because those days were they would be exhausting for somebody who was in the prime of health. And uh, I mean, you saw it, you saw members of Congress who looked like they were worn out. And here was a guy who was, who was suffering with a, a terrible situation that most people didn't really know much about. And he said, um, one time I was talking with him about, about this attack, the, the, the Trump attack, and, and the cumulative effect of all the things that had occurred in that past year. And he said something something on the order of, uh, I'm afraid this is going to kill me. And I, you know, that's an expression we use sometimes, you know, that's going to kill me. Or, and I said, oh, yeah. And he said, no, I'm afraid that's going to kill me. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, it, it got to me. It got to my heart and soul. That and I'm, I'm tired and I'm, and it got to me. And this was around, I'd have to look back at my notes, but this was around the same time that I, I would often broach topics with him, most of which he was very open. I'll talk about this. I'll talk about that. Once in a while, I would go to a topic and he'd say, I don't want to talk about that. And usually, I mean, if it was something very, very personal, I'd say, okay, that's fine. But usually as we got to know each other, I felt I could say to him, well, are you sure? Or how come? Or, and he would sometimes tip, you know, work his way into the topic. And I remember one time I said, around this same time, I said, you know, and I remember at this point, I only knew a little bit about his health situation. I knew that he was having, that he was compromised and could no longer walk, but there was a, but he had an infection in his knee and he had heart surgery and there were a lot of ways to explain things. So I said, you know, uh, we need to talk about your health. And he said, well, I've told you about my health. I, you know, you know what about. And I said, well, I think we need probably to tell people, I have a feeling you're overcoming and much more challenge. And he said, well, I don't want to talk about that. I said, oh, well, okay. I said, but if you want to, we could talk about it. 
And then after you're done, you could decide if you want to use it or not, because it's your book. It's not mine. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, okay. So we'll talk for about five minutes. So first of all, about 45 minutes later, he had told me every detail of his illness going way back. And I was sort of, my mouth was, you know, my jaw had dropped because I did not know the severity of, and um, he, he, but he talked about it and he, and I said to him at one point, it's in the book. I said, so for 25 years, you've beaten this disease. He said, Oh no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose. I'm holding it off. And I keep holding it off. And he said, and I guess I believe I can keep holding it off a little longer. And even during this all comes full circle, even during that last period of time when he was really fading, I think people around him, maybe even more so than he thought, oh, he's going to find a way to fight through this for some period of time. But, you know, but, and he, he certainly fought to the very, very end. Very, very strong person in terms of spirit. Mm -hmm. his body may have he may have lost that battle but it wasn't because his spirit gave out oh it's so clear and Maya I want to go back to you because you knew what was going on you made some comment even at the funeral I mean this this didn't start this didn't start just in the last year or two because (laughs) many people had known the, the history the two decades plus all right and so my question has to do with how you and he together moved through the pain to keep getting going and to take the high road. Because what, what Jack and I was saying when the former president was being so awful was how dignified our Elijah was in his response. And we couldn't help but think about what the former first lady, Michelle Obama, when they go low, we go high. He always went high. He always went high. So just talk about what that meant, how the two of you had to work through that as you were being careful about what you said about the illness, but working through that and dealing with being beat on and his determination to keep the dignity as he fought for the democracy. So there's a lot there uh, because, you know, we had to keep his health quiet. Uh, You know, people didn't realize that, you know, he wasn't voting on the floor of the House uh, for more than 130 days uh, in the last two years of his life. Uh, And that was intentional. Uh, We, um, you know, uh, Elijah didn't want the political vultures circling uh, because he wanted to keep on serving. Uh, and, uh, And he thought that he had a lot to give back. Uh, he felt that if there was a whiff of, you know, um, you know, something major going on, uh, that, you know, he would be politically challenged. Um, he, you know, forged through it. You know, there were a couple of times where it was touch and go, uh, but he kept coming back. Uh, and so in the last year, particularly the last five months uh, of his life, you know, I don't think that we had any way of knowing early on in that period that this would be the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even a couple of weeks out, um, you know, the, the notion that he could rally uh, and come back uh, and certainly, um, you know, rebound again and go back to work full time on the floor uh, was a possibility. Uh, but once it became crystal clear that that was not going to happen, 
uh, it was just amazing how rapid the decline happened. Um, and, and, you know, for me, I was in a precarious position because I was also the chair of the Maryland Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, a volunteer position, mind you, but demanding uh, and remind you that I couldn't tell anybody uh, what I was going through. I, so I had to show a good face. I had to actually be out there uh, with his colleagues, uh, you know, uh, chairing the party um, while also coming straight back to the hospital at night. Um, and so with that, you know, that is, you know, the dynamics of what we were dealing with. It was incredibly, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, there was a lot of pressure, but through it all, through it all, and this is, uh, and I'll end on this, through it all, Elijah showed incredible strength, yes. compassion, mm -hmm. empathy. I mean, this was an incredible human being. He was an incredible spirit. I think he was special in so many ways. Uh, and so, you know, when Donald Trump attacked, of course not, he was not going to come back with, a, with a, an attack uh, of similar of, uh, of response. You know, Elijah was always about the big picture, and that is what his uh, colleagues appreciated about him. He always used to say, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's bigger than us. Excellent, excellent. Anything to add to that, Jim, or should I? Oh, I, I mean, I think about my my lived it daily. You know, there's yeah, a, it's hard, it's yeah. hard to add to that. That's that really is a picture that uh, I think that paints a perfect picture of it. Sure, there are a couple of questions I'm seeing here, and and one I'm going to give you time to think about it. I don't want you to answer now, but I'll tell you. They want to know about uh, the legacies of Elijah Cummings and John Lewis. There's a lot to be said about that. Two wonderful people. But to make the transition, um, I want us to talk about the youth, education, and Elijah's insistence upon helping children and young people from your perspectives as you think about the opportunities and some of the examples of things he did in the, with the idea in mind that our democracy, I love the way he put the statement that our, our children are our messages to the future. You know, what, what we do for them will say exactly who we were back here. So please. Ma, why don't you start and then- Well, is our children are the living messengers we will send to a future we will never see. You're good. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's exactly um, right. <laughs> and so Elijah lived for making a transformative difference in the lives of young people. He viewed it as of paramount importance. Mm -hmm. uh, Councilman Zeke Cohen of Baltimore talks about, you know, in the, the summer, uh, you know, before his steep decline, you know, he was spending, you know, hours with the kids that uh, he was working with. Uh, and, you know, he had other obligations, but he wanted to make sure uh, that he was, uh, you know, um, giving the kids the time and that he was answering their questions and that he was encouraging them because he was an encourager and he wanted them to be able to, you know, rise to be everything that they could be. The, the, uh, the youth program in Israel uh, that, uh, you know, Elijah helped found uh, and that continues to thrive. I mean, Elijah took his responsibilities of selecting each cohort seriously. He would show up and interview every student. He would participate in the decision-making process about who would get selected and he would follow their progress uh, and, you know, come and speak to them on a regular basis. Uh, that was his, you know, he mentored more than, I think, 20 cohorts before he passed away. And some of those young people have risen to, you know, be uh, leaders of organizations. Uh, we've got, 
you know, uh, people who are one that's on CNN as a news anchor. I mean, they, they, they are incredible. Uh, and the program also has a 100% graduation rate from high school and uh, a 95% graduation rate from college. Uh, so, you know, that is, uh, you know, a part of Elijah's legacy. Um, he has so many more things and there are levels to his legacy. And I'll get into that, I think, when I get into the John Lewis response. Great, great. Jim? Well, I think that as, as Maya said, I mean, his, his, if, if he had one overwhelming soft spot, it was, it was youth, it was kids. And it came out in, the, in, the, in this program that he, that he put together, which was fantastic. And it came out on a daily, small, on a small level basis. Sometimes he would tell me a story and the thing that would get him in a story, he, he had a, a woman testify at, at the hearings on, drug, on prescription drug costs. And she had two daughters, both of whom were diabetic and one had died because of her, of the inability to, the, the, to be able to have enough money to pay for insulin. And when he got to that part of that story is when, and the whole story was tragic. When he got to that part of that story is when he began to cry. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were these, these sort of moments, even in the most unlikely situation when he had Michael Cohen on the stand and near the end of that piece, he was sort of reaching out to Michael Cohen and said, I know this is a hard time for you. And he referenced Michael Cohen's daughter seeing a picture of her coming in and how she, what he was saying was how she must feel during this period. It, not that many people either, maybe many of us feel it, many of us don't express it. That feeling and empathy for, for children and wanting to do something and leave something behind for them, leave a message for them, that, that was a big, big driver in his life, much more so than the, than the big stage. It was the big stage was there to serve these young people. Yes, yes. You know, he was secure enough to be willing to cry in public. He could get choked. He was just that strong a man, I would say, that he could get choked when he felt something so deeply. Can we go back for a moment to his childhood, to the, the fact that he, he knew who he was, that he was the son of sharecroppers who would come here, that his forebears had been slaves. He talks about all of that. Uh, but he gives wonderful stories about his giving parents. Can you talk a bit about growing up in Baltimore? I think the wonderful lessons there about what family can do to help create the character of a child to become a man. So please, Maya and then Jim. So, you know, his grandfather, people always ask, you know, Elijah, you know, are you a preacher? Because, you know, his voice had that cake. Yeah. <laughs> but he got it. He got it honest. His grandfather was a preacher. Both of his parents uh, were preachers. Uh, and certainly, I think Elijah's ministry might not have been in the church per se, but he, he was a minister of uh, in the area of politics and policy in terms of that was his ministry. Um, but, you know, uh, his folks came from the Jim Crow South. They came from South Carolina, uh, you know, where, you know, they were sharecroppers and they brought their values before their children ever were born. They decided to come to Baltimore uh, because they wanted to make sure that their children had better opportunities that were than were available in South Carolina. Uh, and so they settled on, uh, you know, the South Side, Baltimore South Side. And, um, you know, Elijah uh, came up in a little uh, segregated neighborhood at Leadenhall and Sharp. 
Uh, and, you know, he, you know, participated in the Boy Scouts. He, you know, uh, you know, talked about how he had a ragtag band of uh, a troop uh, that was, you know, do anything that they could uh, to uh, have an experience that would be meaningful. Uh, you know, he, um, of course, uh, went to separate and unequal schools. He often told the story about the first time, if anybody comes by our house, and we live on Madison Avenue on the west side of Baltimore, um, the door is colored blue, and it's a very kind of unique blue, but this was Elijah's favorite color. And it was his favorite color because, you know, as a young man, he went to, they would go to the white school nearby when they had plays because they didn't have a stage in their school. So they would go to the white school. And when they went into the bathroom of the white school, Elijah was just amazed that they had these blue bathrooms. And he thought <laughs> blue bathrooms were so beautiful that blue became his favorite color. And so now, you know, I've got blue on my door and, you know. Uh, and and so, you know, Baltimore shaped Elijah in ways big and small. Yeah. Certainly his family values that were based in the Pentecostal church, uh, you know, helped to shape his values-based leadership. But certainly Baltimore, the city, a city that he loved, by the way, and thank you, everybody, for loving Elijah, because he loved you just as much. He felt like Baltimore poured into him and made him the man that he was, and it absolutely did. Uh, so, you know, Baltimore was very, very, very instrumental in shaping him as not just a young man, but as an adult. Excellent. Jim, give us one of those stories from upbringing in Baltimore. I love that story about the blue, though, Maya. This is a family story that really got to me. He talked about a lot of times about the holidays, about Christmas and how, you know, how they celebrated in the house. And they made as much of it as they could each year. Some years were good and some years were not so good. And there was a, a year when really they got nothing. And, um, and his parents sort of prepared him and said, you know, we just, it's not a good year. And um, there was a year, there was a year when, when his father gave each of the kids a toothbrush. And, you know, a kid, as Elijah said, you know, a kid would say, oh, great, you know, a toothbrush. But this was a brand new toothbrush and each kid got it and his, they made a point of it. They said they were giving you something. It's symbolic, it's meaningful, it's something. And there was another moment in that, in that where his father said, and it was really a very important statement because it had to do with the way kids are raised, not always in, in whole intact families. His father said, my presence is presence enough, is present enough. Mm. And, and I, I thought, you know, it's a very simple phrase and, and, but meaningful. And here's a man telling me the story some 65 years later that it, it resonated with him all that time. He carried that sort of thing through, um, through his life. He believed that. So he would, you know, a small gift is a big gift. You know, I, I always told Elijah, he was really meant to be in the deep South like me. Cause I'm grunting as you're talking. I and mean, you said that about that presence was present. I went, mm, that that grunt. <laughs> you feel it. You really do. Let let me ask about uh, go for a moment now to John Lewis and Elijah Cummins. Two this giants. Is definitely, this is definitely for you, Maya. Uh, so, these are but, giants, and you know them both. And just what would we, we think about them both and love them both? What are your thoughts, Maya? Can I just say, please tell the story 
of being with the two of them. Oh, oh. absolutely. So yeah, so that's a good way to start it. Um, I love that story. Uh, no, actually, it was an ongoing story because they looked so much yeah, yeah. To, sure. the un, to the unpracticed eye. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, know, um, you know, early in his congressional career, um, Elijah would often get stopped and people would be like, oh, I'm so excited to meet you. I'm so excited to meet you. And, and Elijah would say, who do you think I am? <laughs> and they would say, John Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> and he would be like no <laughs> and i'd be like in the background no <laughs> um and and so he was often early in his career mistaken for don lewis uh and he would often tell john he's just like you know look you know i'm being mistaken for you and you know this and that and john would laugh and but as elijah's career progressed you know, and as he did more FaceTime and did the, the talk shows and, you know, had the hearings that were high profile, um, you know, people would come up and they'd be, do you mind? Can I talk to you? Can I get an autograph? And he'd say, who do you think I am? <laughs> they would say, Elijah Cummings? <laughs> <laughs> and he would smile and he'd be like, yeah. And so, you know, he came into his own in terms of public recognition. Ironically, John is a Elijah ascendant. John often told Elijah that he would get mistaken for Elijah <laughs> in the airport and out and about. And I can't tell you how many times I had a, a friend once wrote to me and said, you know, I saw your husband on TV. I saw your husband, John Lewis on TV. So, you know, um, and you know, I worked for both men. I'm, excuse me. I worked for John Lewis on the House Ways and Means Committee. Oh, he served okay. on the House Ways and Means Committee. I was a staffer on the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, but, you know, of course, I, I married Elijah. And so, you know, I think that they were two sides of the same coin. Sure. Um, sure. You know, Elijah had the, the one civil rights action when he was 11, integrating the pool. John Lewis, as you know, was famously beat on the head, uh, you know, crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge and doing so many actions uh, you know, across time in terms of the civil rights movement. Uh, and so John was older than Elijah, uh, but they had the same passion. They had the same agenda. They cared about voting rights. They cared about human rights. They cared about making sure people had basic provisions and that government was doing its best to care for the least of these. Uh, and so, you know, in many respects, uh, you know, they were very similar. Um, but I would say that Elijah was, you know, absolutely a, a consummate legislator. Uh, what he did from the chairmanship of that House uh, Government Oversight and Reform Committee, uh, all of the hearings that he had, the way that he managed witnesses, the way that he drove home his points, I think that he was able to... Um, you know, really use the Congress and his committee seat uh, as a stage to re reiterate, um, you know, all of these basic questions about what we must do for our nation. Mm -hmm. um, and so with that, you know, when uh, Elijah passed and then John Lewis passed, it was like a one-two punch, a gut punch uh, to many, uh, because many people viewed both of them uh, as civil rights leaders uh, who were the North Star uh, for not just for the Congress, but for our nation. That's exactly right. I, I have to say that, you know, that Elijah and I were the same age and John was about 10 years older uh, and have been in that deep South. 
Um, and as a, as a child marching with Dr. King and going to jail, I had the chance years later to talk with Elijah about Birmingham and Baltimore a lot and all the things. And I tell you that for this reason, um, what Elijah also had that was wonderful was a superb education with, with the segregated schools all the way to City College, to Howard, to Maryland Law. He was well-spoken. He was an excellent thinker. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa. Um, and he had the ability to speak in a way that whether you were the president of the United States or you were walking on the streets of Baltimore, you could connect. There's something about that. And, and the, the, the question I would ask both of you, I mean, given all of what he had, is this, what would you say was his biggest challenge, having been the first Black Speaker Pro Tem in Maryland and moving on to Congress and all of that? What would you see as the greatest challenge he talked about over the years, before this early, before the later time when he really had arrived and everybody knew him? What would you say he, he talked about in those early years in D.C. when he was a Black man in Congress trying to make a difference? What comes to mind from each of you? This is a, that's one of those really challenging questions to pick that one thing. Maya, Maya, you may have a much better insight. And by the way, this is a great question from the, from the chat. I wish I had thought of it, but it's great, yeah. No, I've got to tell you that it was his health. People don't realize it, that he went through that special election and won, but immediately he had a major health setback. Uh, and he underwent chemotherapy. He was undergoing uh, intense chemotherapy in the first few years of his um, uh, coming to Congress. And so I think, um, you know, he would often go down to the house gym uh, to sleep uh, during the day uh, and sometimes at night uh, because, you know, that was the only way that he could rest to recover from the chemotherapy. Oh. And he had to do all of that while not giving anybody a clue as to what was going on with his health uh, because he wanted so desperately to be able to serve uh, and to work on behalf of the people of Baltimore and this, the state of Maryland. Uh, so I do think that the biggest challenge, even in the earliest years of his term in Congress was his health. Yeah, wow. I think that's really, that, that's absolutely correct. I, I was trying to figure out how to, how to, how to frame that, but that's exactly right. Because he was so intent on serving and here was this obstacle there 24 seven. And even still, he managed to do it. He did. He was, I can't tell you how many people who said, oh, he spoke at my kindergarten graduation. He spoke at my junior high graduation. He spoke at my high school graduation. The fact of the matter is, is that Elijah was everywhere. He was able to connect with uh, people from all walks of life. Uh, and, and the impact was on multiple levels. It was on the level of policy. It was on the level of you know, individual service to uh, help people meet people's needs. And it was on the largest level in terms of our democracy as well. And that, that leads me to my final question. You, you both have been wonderful. And we've gotten more laudatory comments than questions because people have just been touched by both of you and what you've had to say. Here's the question. What is the advice from Elijah to all of us in Baltimore and, and in our country as we've gone through 2020 and as we are moving to another level and are trying to make sure that we continue to believe we're better than this 
and we can move the country to protect the democracy. What's the message through the two of you from Elijah? You want to go first, Jim? All right. Okay. Yeah, because I want you to end it. <laughs> okay. I don't care. Um, I think, you know, we said this before. It's don't, don't ever, 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 ever give up in the face of, of daunting odds and situations. And we've been through them more recently. We're always going to go through them, but we've been through recently. Don't give up. Fight to the end. Hold on to the end. Keep saying, I believe to the end. And because and don't even believe there is an end. Just keep on going. I I I bring a lot of this down to the personal level that he he kept going. He kept going, and it sort of comes full circle with the health issues. I sent him a. I, we communicated often by text or email. I sent him a text the night that he died. I didn't know he was. None of us knew. He answered. He he didn't answer me. He read it because I got the message the next day that said he read it. This is a man with who, who had minutes or hours to live. He was going to answer my text because we had a job to do. We had a book to write. Don't give up. Right. Don't give up. Bye. Um, Elijah often talked about, you know, whenever faced with a challenge that there's a lot of emotion, commotion, uh, you know, but what were the results uh, and, you know, he would have called these last four years of Donald J. Trump and coronavirus and, you know, the storm. Uh, and he always had uh, this saying about, you know, yes, we will go through storms in life. But the question is, is where, where will we be on the other side? Uh, will we be resolved uh, to end childhood hunger? Uh, will we be resolved to make sure that every child gets a quality education? Uh, will we actually put our strategies in place uh, to actually address, you know, the racial wealth gap? Uh, and so, you know, he always had a sense of the bigger picture. Uh, he always believed uh, that it's, it's our responsibility, our collective responsibility uh, to move this nation forward uh, and make it a more perfect union. And so, you know, he would have implored everyone uh, to use this as an opportunity to do an about face. We can no longer tolerate the kind of hate and division uh, that uh, certainly that Donald Trump didn't create, uh, but certainly that he helped intensify over the last four years. We are a nation of all people of all backgrounds. And it's time for us to recognize our common humanity and move forward together arm in arm towards building a country that's worthy of our children. One that's diverse, one that's inclusive, one that's full of opportunities and one that leaves no one behind. You were a rock to him. I know you know that. He was always saying that. Jim, thank you for bringing his voice to all of us. If he had been at the inauguration of the new president, he would have loved the young poet, Amanda oh, He He would have been grunt, wouldn't he? Yes, and I, le I leave all of you with this, those last two lines when she challenges us to embrace the light, to be the light. Thank you both very much. And thanks thank to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, so thank you for your Great friendship night. and thank you for your leadership. Thank you. We are all inspired, Maya. We're all inspired. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.
I want to thank all of our panelists for being here this evening. This was a very powerful presentation, and thank you for sharing the memories and words of uh, Congressman Elijah Cummings. I want to remind everyone that we have more programs coming up, so please sign on to prattlibrary.org uh, or look at your compass. Uh, this Saturday, we do have our celebration, our annual celebration of Lucille Clifton with the Clifton House. Uh, it will be a presentation by former poet laureate. Uh, and then the following week on Tuesday, we have Britt Bennett, the author of uh, Vanishing Half presenting. So please join us for those two upcoming presentations, Saturday at two and next Tuesday, same time, same place, right here on Zoom or Facebook Live. Thank you all and we'll see you next time. Great, thank yeah, you. Thank you. Keep hope alive, keep hope alive. <laughs>